Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today has been working as a clinical psychologist for over 12 years. She moved to Dubai back in 2008 from the US with the mission to break the stigma surrounding mental health in the UAE. She was one of the few psychologists in the UAE at the time and started her journey working in a private practice along with her close friend and colleague. Although she was enjoying her work, during that time she realized that her true passion lied in speaking to the community, educating them and bringing awareness to the issues surrounding therapy and mental health. And as a result of a random dinner conversation surrounding grief and being asked to share it with others, her dream to create a community support group center came to fruition and the Lighthouse Arabia was born. Fast forward to today, she has built the Lighthouse to host the largest number of support groups housed in a single entity in the world. It is a mental health and awareness center that contains over 30 clinicians and has become the largest in the region, serving all ages. During this episode, we discuss her journey of building the Lighthouse, she shares with us her knowledge and experience regarding all aspects of therapy, and we talk about her life's mission of breaking the stigma surrounding therapy and mental health. She has always been someone who listens to her inner voice, and that has been one of the key factors in her success. Her desire and passion towards fulfilling her life's mission and true calling has enabled her to create and establish the most renowned therapy center in the region. And the message she wanted to share with us is to own your life, own your struggles, and to not look at life as happening to you, but rather than it's happening for you. Please welcome to the show, the founder and managing director of the Lighthouse Arabia, the amazing Dr. Saliha Afridi. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Khaled. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, so Saliha, I found out about you a couple of months ago uh, when I was looking to do my own therapy and a good friend of mine actually recommended uh, Lighthouse. So I actually worked with one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Juan, and he was just amazing. Uh, so and I did a little and after going through our sessions, which was super helpful, I dived a little bit deeper into what Lighthouse was and your background and yourself. And I thought it would be so interesting to talk to you and listen to your story and you know how lighthouse came to be and all things to do with therapy so i wanted before we get into all of that why don't you give just everyone who doesn't know uh, a little bit of background just about yourself and we'll take it from there so like you said my name is dr saliha fridi i'm a clinical psychologist and the managing director of the lighthouse arabia i uh, the lighthouse arabia has been around for almost a decade so next year it will be 10 years for us I moved to the UAE uh, 11 years ago. It'll be 12 years in December, but um, I moved here and I was working, um, you know, working at a private clinic before I started. And so uh, the Lighthouse is a community mental health outpatient clinic center, which focuses on mental health, mental well-being, not just mental illness. And so this is a place where you go from, oh, I don't feel so good to better, and also going from good to great. And so we have made it a well-being center rather than just treating mental health issues only. Uh, we have, uh, we are one of the largest uh, houses of mental health within the region. And uh, we also, we serve all sorts of ages and um, individuals, couples, families. So if it's really under the umbrella of mental health or emotional wellness, then we cover it in some way. We have occupational therapy and speech and language therapy, psychiatry, which is medication management. So it's not just therapy that we do. Okay, okay. That's super interesting. And when I was doing uh, my research, I understood the story behind Lighthouse, which was that it started off as a community m- mental health center and then 
uh, turned into a business, which I thought was really interesting. Why don't you tell us a little about that story about meeting that guy at dinner and how that, you know, how that all came to be? Well, um, the story is a little bit long, so just bear with me then, <laughs> sure. um, because you really are asking for the details. <laughs> um, so like I said, I moved to the UAE um, when, you know, uh, 12 years ago. And um, Tara and I had moved from different places. She moved from the UK, I moved from the US, but we used to work in the same private practice. And in that practice, um, we were doing great work. I was seeing lots of clients. We were one of very few psychotherapists or psychologists at that time within um, the UAE. So we were just busy and hustling and it was just great. And I could feel that this was really what I was meant to be doing. And, um, and I felt really excited by that work, but. I, I, there were lots of different things within that space that I actually didn't enjoy. Uh, there was just a lot of um, hierarchy, bureaucracy, politics, um, uh, and, and then it was very much focused on um, money which a lot of things tend to do when it comes to, um, when it comes to the UAE, I think you just become very business minded and money minded and it's just, you lose your why and you lose your focus. I think if you don't stay clear. And so then um, I, I just knew that there was just something uh, missing within that whole space. And I just, I couldn't figure that out, but um, I knew that something about teaching or raising awareness or being out with a community was one of those things. So I just, I was, you know, I, I was not as clear minded uh, then, but I definitely felt that there was a spirit that was very loud inside of me at all times in my life. And that spirit was basically saying, this ain't it. And so I started interviewing at lots of different places. I interviewed at airlines and schools and hospitals and everywhere I went, I found myself really just stuck in some sort of system that wouldn't allow me to do what I needed to do. And you needed to get this approval at this lawyer at this way. And it was like, okay, listen, man, I just want to talk to the community and that's all I want to do. Like, how do I do that in a way which doesn't seem to have like so many, like, you know, chains and things associated with it. Anyways, I just sort of threw that out into the universe and I said, okay, I, God, you know where I'm at, you know what I want and you know why I want it, so just make it easy for me. Fast forward a few months and I'm sitting at a dinner party, which has nothing to do with work. It was one of my friends actually that was leaving Dubai at that time, so it was a goodbye party. And I sat next to a man and that man asked me, um, you know, you know, what do you do for a living? I don't know this man. Oh, I'm a psychologist. And you know, everybody just sort of looks at you a little bit funny when you say that. And they're like, are you analyzing me? I'm like, no, are you paying me? No. So no, I don't actually analyze you at dinner tables. But he's like, okay, well, can you tell me um, a little bit about grief? And I said, ah, oh, you know, not really a dinner party conversation, but okay. So I just gave him like a little bit of a brief. And he said, okay, I'd like to carry this conversation forward. And then I met him outside, we met for coffee, and I just found myself, that's it. This is where I'm coming to life. And I found like, there's like, when, when the soul feels like it's heard, and the soul feels like it's engaged, that's what it was doing. And I could feel myself coming to life. But, and it was just one guy that I was talking to. So I'm teaching him about something that he didn't know about. And I really felt like, okay, this is, this is it. I need to listen to this. And I think one main factor of that was I wasn't getting paid to do it. So I did do it with my clients, but there was an exchange of money that happened yeah, yeah. Uh, for information. 
with this guy, I met him for coffee and I told him about grief over a course of seven hours and a few weeks. And I really felt like I was coming to life and it was because I wasn't getting paid for it. So this is what makes me come to life apparently. Um, and so I listened to that voice. Um, eventually when I got done with that, you know, seven hours over the few weeks, he actually said, well, I need you to tell what you told me about grief and death and dying and bereavement and complicated grief and stages and phases. I said all of that to him. Now you go say it to these people. And I said, sure, I'll go tell these people. So he gathered five people and he said, Saleha, Dr. Saleha, please tell them about grief. And I did the whole spiel with them again. And I again felt myself coming to life because now there's more people and I'm not getting paid, which is great. Um, and so I did. And eventually these people said, okay, listen, this is really valuable information because that guy actually said that if I had known this, he was very regretful, but he felt like a burden lifted off of his chest. He felt that if he had known the information I had given him over just five, seven hours, he would have been able to save his relationship, his marriage, basically, because he was not able to support his wife as she was grieving the loss of the death of her mother. And so that relationship dissolved. And if he would have known what I told him, because there's a lot of fallacies, especially in the Muslim tradition and um, in the Arab region, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the East that you should just not question God's will. And if you're crying, then you're not grateful. And it's, it's complicates things a little bit. And so he really just felt like, okay, three days of mourning and you're out. Exactly. mourning and grief is very different. And so I had to educate him that three days of mourning, which is an outward expression of uh, grief is very different from an internal grief, which can be lifelong and quoted the prophets where he went for years and years later to Khadija's grave or his mother's grave. And he actually would cry at those um, in those events. And so he was like, Oh my God, I didn't know this same thing with these people that I told them. And they actually, you know, one person had lost their father nine years earlier, but he never allowed himself to cry because he felt like he was questioning God's will. And, um, you know, someone had lost a mother, a brother, a father. And so all of these people felt a huge relief. And they felt like we talk a lot about productive life and good life and great life, but we don't talk about death. No one knows how to do death. No one knows how to support people with death. So I said, okay, listen, Dr. Saleha, we, and these were very sort of influential, powerful people within their community. And they said, we will pay you, but you go do the work for free. Okay. Okay. And so what we're going to pay you. And so I was like, "Mm, okay, well, let's see. So I fly to the U S I learn about grief because interestingly enough, it was not one of the topics that I feel very excited about because I was so scared of grief at that time. But I went, I flew to the US, I spent two weeks with the president of the Death and Suicide Thantology Association, learned about setting up a grief center, learned about, you know, nonprofit, learn, 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 and came back in two weeks. And I went to these guys and I said, "Um, I have three ways we can move forward with this. One, I can continue to work where I'm working but you're going to have to rent me a place because the clinic I was working in was literally very, very small. Um, and there's no way I can hold any group sessions or learning. You'll have to pay him because he, my license sits with him and you'll have like, you'll have to rent me a place. So you'll have to do these. So I don't know how sustainable this is and how much of a budget you had in mind. Number two, I can actually go to hospitals where people die and I will be there to support the people that are 
surviving those people. And I will teach them how to do grief and teach them what to expect. However, I'm going to need the assistance of the hospital. And there's so much turnover and red tape and yellow tape and blue tape in hospitals that I just don't know how much tape I'm going to be stuck in. But you know what? <laughs> if anyone can do it, I can do it. And so that way you just have to pay me, but I just have to find a way to, or rent some space and same thing. It's just going to be a little bit stuck, but no problem. We can do it. I said, the third way we can do this is actually, I take whatever you were going to give me, whatever payment you wanted to pay me. Let's just say you wanted to pay me 10 per month to do this. I take 10 times 12 times three years upfront. These guys didn't know me from anything. And so I said, you're going to have to trust me that I'm not going to run off with your money, but trust me that I will do this work. And what I will do is I will open a private practice. And in that private practice, I will house a grief center and the grief services for as long as that center is around, we will do this work for free. And we will teach people how to do grief. We will do one-on-one -on -one grief consultations about teaching people how to do grief or how to support people with grief. And we will do support groups that are free of charge for people that have lost someone to grief. Um, they really loved this idea. It's like a three-year investment upfront, but maybe a long time return, hopefully. I didn't have any plans on going anywhere. So now that's going on almost 10 years. So they, wow. their investment is, is very much alive. And so I think it's important when I tell this story that a lot of businesses set up support groups as part of their initiatives. But we, the Lighthouse, are really a social enterprise because we wanted to do something for free. And setting up a nonprofit has so many bells and whistles and tapes around it. It's a little bit hard, especially in this country. And so we actually call ourselves a social enterprise where we have a mission that is guiding us. And that mission is to serve the community. And that mission, we work all around that. And everything that builds from that actually is that. So the, the free service gave birth to the business. The business. Yeah. Death gave birth to light and life. Um, and, and I think that's actually quite amazing that from the darkness of grief, there was a lighthouse that came. Yeah. I, I love that story. It's such a beautiful story. And what I really like about it is that how it started was you, like it was, like you said, you weren't being paid to do this. So for you, which is why you entered, I'm guessing into psychology and into therapy and so on, it's just, you purely wanted to help people. And because of just that passion, you were able to somehow, like you said, the universe put you in a place that gave you the ability to start creating that and, you know, having a larger impact on people. So I love, love, love that story. Um, one thing you said about, so when it started off as a grief uh, community health center, did you have plans? Did you see it long term as building it into what the lighthouse is today or just like as time went on, it just like kind of grew and grew and grew? Yeah, you know, and people have asked me that question, like, what's your vision? And I'm like, I don't have one. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> okay. my, I have one, I have a mission. And the vision has always just come. Um, the vision has always just come as a result of that. Okay. So okay. Um, if I stay focused on the mission, the vision just develops and it's just not my vision. It's everyone that joins the lighthouse. So very, very honest. I wanted to have a small private practice. I wanted to run the show. I wanted to do work for free. I wanted to educate the community. I didn't want to have to answer to anyone as to why we weren't getting paid for this. That's why I set it up and eventually getting people to come join our mission 
was then, you know, my mission was how do I grow a team that actually can help me with this mission? And then the people, there were some idealists like me who actually went ahead and joined and they all work every, every single person at the lighthouse signs up to do work for free. So whatever, which way you do it, you're going to be working. Some part of this work is going to be free. We do charge for our therapy sessions and we charge, you know, the normal market rate. So this is not like a nonprofit that we're operating, but we are doing work for free and we are helping individuals free of charge by many, many other services. So it was never, really a vision driven but a mission driven okay place yeah yeah i think that's a very interesting way to look at it because a lot of people usually focus on the vision and that's what i'm working towards but if you have such a clear mission i think like you said in your case it can play right into that and the vision kind of is created as a result of that um i i was curious so when you as time has gone on and the lighthouse has developed there's so many different forms of therapies and you know there's clinic and you're i know you're a clinical psychologist and there's occupational therapy and there's so many types of therapy so let's say i'm a client that's coming in i have an issue how do you start identifying which is the right kind of person or how do i start learning as myself i don't know anything about therapy who is the type of person i need to speak to because would i would it be wrong in saying that a lot of people could different people could probably have the same, like help me with similar issues or is it a lot more specific and tailored than that? There are some things that all therapists are capable of doing. We are all capable of dealing with depression. We're all capable of dealing with anxiety, you know, but then there are things like um, um, bipolar or OCD or, you know, a very like personality disorders, these are going to be a lot more serious and you're going to need a lot more specialization like couples therapy. So I always tell people that if you find a therapist who can do everything, then you probably don't have the right therapist because while we're all trained in everything, there are some things that we're deeply like experts in. Like I was trained, I had one year of training, let's just say in couples therapy. But I do not consider myself a couples therapist because I didn't continue that education. I didn't deepen that training. I didn't get further supervision beyond that one year. And you need that kind of level of supervision and care even after years and years of practice. So I think it's important that you find an expert. And that's what I think at the lighthouse, we really try to hone in. So if you call the clinic and say, um, I would like to book an appointment, we will ask you to fill out a form. And in that form, you will indicate what are some of your struggles, or we will have a phone call with you in which you will indicate some of your struggles. And then we will assign you a therapist that is best suited to work with that. Now, the list of depression, you'll have like 30 people that you can work with. But the list of maybe narcissistic personality disorder, maybe two people will come. If it's a couples therapist, maybe only one person will show up. So Mm. it really is about deep expertise in particular subjects or uh, um, symptoms or diagnoses. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a very good point. Because even myself, when I when I came to Lighthouse, I had to fill out a form, and then they you uh, you recommended to me. I think this is the right person that you'd speak to, and you guys were spot on. So I'm sure like it's all working fine. Spend a lot of time on the front end yeah. because we do know that there are. And and when I used to work, I mean, these are all things that I learned. You know, so there's so much there's so much gift in being in the place that I was in before because I learned how not to do things. Okay. <laughs> and one of the ways was that they would just put someone in front of me because they didn't do the front end of the stuff, you know, they didn't. So 
what happens on the front end is so important because they would put a person in front of me. So someone would call, I want to book an appointment with a psychologist. And they say, okay, come to this psychologist. And they book it in. They didn't ask. It was just front office booking appointments. But then the person sits in front of me and then says, I'm having issues with my marriage and I need couples therapy. And it's like, oh, uh, well, I'm going to have to refer you to my colleague. Mm. And then they've wasted that hour and they've paid for that hour. And now I have to debrief that therapist because I don't want to waste their first hour. It just was a mess. So we actually used to, before when we were smaller, we would have therapists be making the phone calls for those 15, 20 minute sessions. And then we came up with a system and now we're coming up with an even a better system that's even tightly more tightly managed. So I think it's, it really is about doing the work up front to manage the frustration because I've been in therapy and I'll continue to be in therapy. And I know how hard it is to show up for that first hour. Yeah. And then to be told that, wait, you're not the person. And it's like, oh my God, not to go do this again with another yeah. person. So I think we just don't want that to happen. So our client experience is super, super important to us. Yeah. And managing the frustration is super important to us. hundred percent. And uh, following on that point. So I've it's so funny in the last, I think, year, the amount of people that I've spoken to that have actually gone to therapy or that were in therapy. I like I wouldn't hear about this stuff like two, three years ago. So it was very interesting. It seems in the last few years, things have really picked up and. A lot of people that I've spoken to sometimes had some, you know, hesitance about going to a therapist. They might feel like a shame. They might feel like it's seen as a weakness, whatever it might be. And sometimes they've gone and not had a, a positive experience. And that has kind of put them off therapy. And what I learned from my experience working with Dr. Juan was that I think it's so important for not only for the therapist that you're working with to be the right therapist for you, but for you to genuinely feel that you have a connection with that therapist. So for people who haven't let's say, who might have had a bad experience, what would you say to them or what is the kind of things they need to be thinking about when like working with a therapist? Because I think it's a two-way street. It's not just qualification. It's also the human connection you have together. So I think, you know, I think other doctors might be able to get away with having just good enough chairside manners, but they have good, deep expertise, right? I go to yeah. a cardiologist, I go to a neurologist, they do all sorts of things. And they might not be like amazing, but they're good enough, but they're sharp at what they do. And I might still go to that doctor. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we want doctors who have good chairside manner uh, and who have good bedside manner. But, um, but when it comes to a therapist, you are going on an inner journey with this person. Like you want to make sure that you can travel with this guy or this girl, right? Like this is not just a person that who's just going to be teaching you something and then you're going to go off your, I think if you see therapy in the medical model, you will actually be put off by it because you'll just think that all doctors are like this. Um, and so I think it's important that people see this as a journey. Therapy is a journey. It might be a four session, four hour journey, but would you want to be in the car ride four hours with somebody you don't like, you know, or maybe you're, you know, the four hour journey could actually be so much better and so much deeper and so much engaging if you like click with that person. Yeah. So I think one thing I would do is empower the individual to do some work and say, okay, listen, you can um, interview the person that you're sitting with. They're interviewing you, but you're interviewing them. Like, you know, where was you, where are you trained? How are you doing? And sense, 
do I like this person? Do I feel this person? And give it two sessions, I say. The first session, sometimes like you're not jiving and you're like, oh, I don't know. And so the person is trying to like figure you out. But after the second session, if you're like, no way, man, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. Don't go back, but don't stop because there is someone out there for you. And I'll be very honest with you, Khaled, there will be people, and I've actually said this on the phone during some of my client consults that I used to do, is that, hey, you're gonna come into the session with me. I'm not, you might not like me because I remind you of your mother or your sister or your ex-girlfriend or somebody, and it's okay that you don't, it doesn't have to work between me. However, I have 25 other people that you can go to. So don't give up on therapy simply because it didn't click with me or you didn't feel heard by me or understood by me or something didn't work. Um, go to someone else because you have to find the right person. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And I, I love what you'd say that I might remind you of these kind of people, but don't give up. There's a lot of other people that I might not be the right person, but they might be able to help you. So like you said, not giving up on therapy, I think is is super important but one thing i've also learned through therapy and speaking to people is sometimes people's motivation for therapy going to therapy i think is wrong you're why like why are you going maybe someone one of your friends or someone close to you is like i think you should go to therapy so if it doesn't if it hasn't come from you necessarily like from inside you that you believe you want to work on yourself sometimes it might not Maybe it might not work or you might have might not have the best experience. And also sometimes I feel that people go and put like, I've gone to a therapist. Now it's your responsibility to fix my problem. And it, you know what I mean? So what, what would you say around like all that? And how would you convince people to like understand that this is a partnership? I'm here to help you, but you have to also put in the work. That's a great question. Um, so this is where... You know, when I talked about the road trip analogy or climbing the mountain analogy, we are the Sherpas, okay? We are the co-pilot holding the map. This was before GPS, okay? So this is before <laughs> map, uh, Google Maps came up or whatever they're called. Um, and so this is where I'm holding the map and you're driving. I can show you the way and then say, well, if you take a left here, it's faster because there's less traffic. But you still have to do the driving. And so the ownership of this journey is yours. No one, not even me, is an expert on your life. You are the expert on your life. I am just the expert on how to get us moving and remove some of these roadblocks that are in the way or get bypassed the roadblocks. And so you still have to do the climbing. If you come to me one hour a week out of the hundred and however many hours there are in a week and you tell me, okay, fix this. But then the rest of the time, like the 165 or 69 hours that you're going out there doing all the wrong things, we're not magicians. We're therapists. <laughs> you know, we don't have a magic wand and we don't know how to fix problems. We're not like surgeons. We can't like, you know, take out a part of your brain that makes you do these things. You have got to do the daily work. Yeah. And only then does this therapy work. Therapy doesn't work unless you work. And therapy only works as hard as you work. Yeah. We just know it's like the train, it's like a coach, right? I can teach you all sorts of things. However, if you are not doing the work, the game is not going to work. You're not going to be able to play the game in the way that you could have. So daily practice, daily commitment, daily showing up, that's what's important. Yeah. And in your experience, so people, I think people can start 
like well i can come let's say me and you had a session it was great another one two three sessions great i do the work because i look at it i'm trying to think of it and like as a gym analogy you know someone wants to go lose weight or someone wants to like you know improve their mental health you go like really hard for like a month two months but then that motivation that consistently consistency tends to fall off so how do we ensure that the people coming to us well i know it's not as a therapist it's not your responsibility but how do you ensure people like those changes last in the long term and they make those lifestyle adaptations that they need to make anything think of it as mental hygiene right we have sleep hygiene we have dental hygiene and then you have to have emotional hygiene if you stop brush forget the gym because sometimes they're like oh i don't want to go to the gym and then i'll be able to pick that back up again talk about just brushing your teeth every day if you don't brush your teeth every day yeah, you're going to need a root canal at some point. You'll have cavities at some point. That's what happens. This is a daily practice mm. of managing your mental health and emotional health, right? This is something you have to do every day, not just think every day. So I have to make a commitment to show up for myself every day. So um, this is not, I mean, like I said, the coach can teach you all sorts of things, but in the end, I got to, the dentist can teach me how to floss and the importance of floss, but then I have to do it every single day or guess what? I'm going to have cavities and other things that build up in my teeth and that's just not healthy. And so I think it's just important to know that there's a hygiene part mm, of this. Okay. Yeah. And when people think about it as emotional hygiene and mental hygiene, sleep hygiene these are important things like physical hygiene you know you don't just shower once in a while and then wish that you didn't smell like you still <laughs> you you take care of your physical hygiene For sure. right yeah and so that's how you need to think about it uh, to make it a hygiene habit rather than um, a project that you're working on because projects don't have that same sort of sustained um momentum and yeah. this this is the hygiene. It's like, whether you like it or not, you got to do it. You know, yeah. like you don't really have a choice <laughs> exactly. or you just won't feel good. True, true. Um, I think that's a very good way to look at it. When you label it as hygiene, I think in your mind, you create a different kind of picture and it's so much easier to relate to it and to relate to the importance of it. Like you said, like sleep hygiene, like, you know, brushing your teeth, like all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm currently uh, getting my certification in hypnotherapy. And one thing that you said just now, which I thought about, so in hypnotherapy, what I've learned is every thought creates an emotional, uh, sorry, a, a physical reaction in the body. So are mental health and emotional health two completely different things? Or are those things like intertwined together or do one, does one play into the other? No, absolutely not. Okay. There is nothing in our system that is not intertwined. Okay. Our system is one system one system okay right if i sprain my ankle i'm gonna feel it in my neck because i'm now pushing more weight on the other leg i'm probably walking differently which is pushing weight on my hips which is pushing weights on my lower back which is putting weight on my neck and my shoulders i will feel it in my jaw if i sprain my ankle if you are attuned enough mm -hmm. right and so there is no part of our system that is dissociated from the other system. Okay. And now we know from science that there's something called the vagus nerve. Some people call it the vagus nerve, but when I think of vagus, I have lots of other associations. <laughs> so it's not the vagus for me, it's the vagus nerve. And vagus is actually a Latin word for the wanderer, the wandering 
nerve. And it's the second largest nerve after the sciatica nerve. And actually it's a two-way highway. This nerve sits at the base of your brain. This nerve connects your brain to your heart, to your gut, to your kidneys, to your liver, to your all major organs of your body, except I think the adrenals uh, or the pancreas. One of the organs it doesn't connect to, but literally your brain is connected to all of them. So if your gut is not happy, you are not happy. You know when we say you are what you eat, you literally are what you eat. You eat junk food, guess what guys? Don't think you're gonna feel like a superpower when you're eating Doritos, right? It's just not gonna, and no, I'm not hating on Doritos. I love Doritos, yeah. but you know, in yeah. moderation is good. But um, this is about, if you eat things that have a shelf life that are dead, you know, um, shelf life of 15 years and they're dead, guess what you're going to feel? You're going to feel dead because that's what's being communicated to your brain. And so your gut health is absolutely linked to your mental health. And there are probiotics. And when you take probiotics, you can actually relieve certain anxieties and other sort of symptoms in your body. So 100%. And there's so much research now done on the placebo effect. I can give you a TikTok and I can say, this is an anti-anxiety medication and you are symptom-free as if you had the anti-anxiety medication. There's a placebo group, there's an anti-anxiety medication group, and then there's a nothing, they were told nothing group, and they were given nothing group. These guys had the same impact. Now that's the power of the mind. So yeah. the mind absolutely is in charge of the physical body, and I can actually throw myself into a full-on fight or flight response, sitting in the Maldives, on the beach, sipping a drink, and think of my boss and freak myself out into where my body thinks it's being chased by a lion, just by thinking. So of course, you can do that. Of course, there is no disconnect between the mind and the body. And the research is endless for those who want to believe. And for those who don't want to believe, they will still start to segment these two things out where they look at it very, very medically and they look at it very, very myopically and very, very fragmented. It's not like that. The liver is connected to the kidneys, they're connected to the gut, which is connected to the heart, which is connected to the brain. It's all one, guys. We are one system. Yeah. So are there different, would you use, would it, would you handle a session differently if you're trying to treat, I know everything's connected, but are there different, I guess, approaches for approaching someone's mental health uh, or, and their emotional health? Or is it, if, I've can, if we can work on the mental health, the emotional health would go along, go along with it? Or are there different approaches that you take? You know, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, this mental word is really just stupid. I'm sorry, I can't think of a better word right now. But <laughs> calling it mental is actually not accurate. It's brain health versus emotional health, you know, and brain health is linked to your physical health and your emotional health. So they're all feeding into each other, right? Yeah. And so I don't like this word mental health. I don't know who decided to come up with it, but I actually don't think so. When I'm talking about emotional health, I'm talking about mental health, but I'm, you might be saying, is brain health different from yeah, emotional exactly, health? Exactly, exactly. And I'm going to say, that it's all one and they usually will you know if someone comes to me my first thing i'm going to ask them are you sleeping seven to eight hours i'm going to say are you eating healthy foods are you exercising if you're not 
we're, we're literally operating from like a zero tank here. So you're basically telling me that you want to work on all these things to make yourself feel better. But we know from the hard research coming out of UC Berkeley and other, you know, amazing universities that you are more reactive if you don't get seven to eight hours of sleep. So now you're more anxious, you're more depressed, you're more tired. And now you're coming to me for one hour a week saying, teach me something to be less anxious. But you're not willing to make that commitment to go to bed earlier or to work on that sleep hygiene, to really find a way to lock that in. So, but I actually say, focus on the physical health and the mental health will follow. Now, the mental health will follow, but you still have to learn some skills. But if you're not doing the basic bare minimum, just like basically, I let my kids imagine, I let my kids stay up as late as they want. They watch Netflix until whatever time they want. They don't go, you know, eat healthy. They eat whatever they want. They can order burgers and pizzas every day of the week, every hour of the week. They eat junk food and Snickers. Um, they don't get any movement. They just literally sit all day and maybe they do their homework. And may what do I exactly expect these kids to be capable of learning in therapy? if they're not even doing the basic. And so I think you're literally asking for a miracle if you are not in physical health to get mental health or yeah. emotional health. You, you, they're not, you know, they're not, it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. So it is necessary to have physical health, but it's not enough. So you do need to work on building the skills like anxiety management skills and, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy skills and these types of skills. You need that, but you definitely cannot exist without that, without having good practices in place. Yeah. So like you said, you need to have at least the basic physical foundations, you know, down so that any therapy or anything that from a mental perspective that you're trying to accomplish is actually going to work because the two play hand in hand, right? Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And that's sleep was a big one that I didn't consider for years. And then I read this amazing book by I think Matthew Walker or something. And it completely changed my perspective on sleep because I thought, oh, yeah, six hours is enough. And then he like shows you the math and you're like, oh, my God, I need to start sleeping more. It's crazy how how important it is. I wanted to come back to you said something earlier that uh, I was really curious about, about, you know, about you know how people talk about the universe a lot and like putting out you know your intention into the universe and so on and the universe will give back to you just like it happened in your experience and in my experience it's been similar as well but i feel like sometimes using that example can give people the ability to like cop out and not put in the work to get what you're trying to get because i think the universe will give it to you but you have to put in the work and the intention for for it to give it to you, you kind of have to like earn it so like it gives it back to you what do you think about when it comes to like the universe and like that, what people talk about, things like that. Nothing works unless you work. You know, even I think it's an Arabic saying or it's in the Hadith or something where it says that, um, you know, trust in God, but tie your camel, right? <laughs> you need to tie your camel. Like, yeah, good. You trust in God and you know he'll be there for you and he'll protect you. But like, you can't just not tie the camel because it's going to walk off. And so 
you know, there's another uh, story where there's a man and there's a huge flood happening and he's up on the roof and he's praying to God, God, please save me. God, help me. And, you know, there's an ele- uh, 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 a boat that comes by and he's like, no, no, God is going to save me. And then there's a helicopter that comes by and like, no, 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 I'm waiting for God to save me. And then, you know, eventually God says, hey, listen, man, like I'm sending you the boat. And I'm sending you the Hollywood. Like you have to do the work, like get off the roof and go into the boat or climb up the rope of the helicopter. So you have to do the work and the opportunities will be there. So the universe will present to you opportunities, but it's not going to open the door. You got to open the door. You do have to move. You know, the word responsibility is two words, response, ability. So you need to take responsibility for your life. And in order to do that, you need to own that, right? Yeah. I need to own this issue and say, I will be able to respond if I take the full ownership of that. So responsibility and personal authority that I'm not waiting for mommy to save me or daddy to save me or husband or wife or God, I need to save me. And then the universe does what it needs. Then the universe aligns itself because you're moving in the direction that it needs you to. Yeah, exactly. I think you said it perfectly, like nothing, nothing, literally nothing works unless you work and you have to put in the work. So, you know, the universe is going to give back to you whatever you put into it. So I 100% agree on that. I just thought that sometimes people can use it in like in the examples that you you said as a cop out, like, I won't do anything. And, you know, God or like the universe, whoever it might be, will give it to me and, you know, everything will be fine. Um, What do you what are your thoughts on the saying that you know how people say, follow your passion and the money will come. Do you think, do you believe that to be true? Or are there, is there, or is that an unfinished like sentence and there's more things to consider? Because I think in reality, sometimes people don't have the ability to fully, you know, dive into their passion. If you have, you know, certain responsibilities to family, financially, whatever it might be. So what are your thoughts about that? You know, if you're following your passion, maybe money won't matter. I don't know what my thoughts are about that because if you follow your calling, I'm going to, I'm going to disconnect from that word passion. Okay. I'm going to follow a deep calling, my purpose. Like I'm here to do this. When you live that way, the money doesn't matter. And the money does come in the end, but money doesn't just come from the calling. The calling has to come that has to be used in the service of other people right if your if your why is i want to make money then you will never have enough money mm. but if your why is i am here to serve and i will serve in maybe i'm an artist and i will serve humanity by creating these pieces or maybe they have street art or 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 and maybe they sell their t-shirts and they donate it to a certain charity but I'm going to use my calling, which is art, to serve humanity, then money, usually the universe will respond in that. So I do believe in like karmic exchange here, where if I'm depositing into the universe, the universe responds back with something. But there's a general contentment Mm. that money cannot buy. So I think money is important. I'm not saying money is not. But if money 
is your goal, I'm sorry, you're never going to be happy. If your only goal is, oh, oh, I'm going to follow my passion so money can come. No, I'm sorry. Then you're in it for the wrong thing. But if you say, I just want to come alive every single day and I want to feel my work and I want to feel my heart every single day. I don't think you think about money (laughs) at that point. You, You think about meeting your basic needs and making sure that your kids go to a good school and this and that. So I think if you're so obsessed with money, then you'll never have enough. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think something you said that was super interesting is reframing it from passion to calling. So instead of, you know, how everyone talks about finding your passion or whatever it might be. Uh, but if you think about it from a calling, I think I think it just resonates with people differently. Like you take it in differently than just like a passion. But then the question becomes, um, you know, that a lot of people ask like, oh, how do I how do I find what I'm passionate about? How do I figure out what my true calling is? Uh, like in your example, I remember uh, when I was doing the research that you took a psychology class and you didn't like it. <laughs> and then you're like, I'd, and you'd, you're like, I'd never be in it. And then here you are, I don't know, 10, 15 years later as like clinical psychologist with like all this kind of thing. So it's so funny how things work out. So how did you find out your true calling? How did you come to realize this is exactly what you wanted to do? You know, I've always listened to without knowing it. Now I know. Now I know what I was listening to. And I trust that voice way more now. But I, if I didn't like something, I didn't do it. Like when I was younger, you know, this was really where my spirit was super loud. And so, okay, I'll do psychology, took an, you know, abnormal psychology, like 101 in college. And it was like, oh my God, this is like, forget it. I don't want this. And then I went and, and it was, I mean, everything happened for a beautiful reason. And then I got my um my bachelor's in anthropology and journalism because writing and cultures and people like that brought me to life anthropology my dad is like what (laughs) (laughs) is that like when you dig things up and I'm like no that's archaeology this is anthropology (laughs) like oh my god what is she studying and he spent thousands of dollars trying to educate me in something that is absolutely irrelevant but I did it I did it and I loved it and I came to life and I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but I was like, it'll, it'll, it'll work out. Eventually I ended up getting a marketing job and I did it for a year and a half. And the day, literally the day I said, I can't, I can't No, I, it was like an aha moment. I'm sitting in my office and they have invested money in me at this point because they see me as this like superstar salesperson, marketing and this and that. Great. It was good. And then one day I just said, oh my God, I, I can't be in a job where I have to use psychology to sell things to people that they don't need. Like I can't do it. And so and, and that's what it meant for me. So I'm not saying that that's what marketing means to everybody, but that's what it meant for me for in that yeah. moment as when I was 20 something years old. That moment, I walked into my boss's office and I said, I'm sorry, I have to resign. And I called my dad after and I was like, oh, I'm going to go to dental school. And he's like, what? <laughs> like, you just got out of school for anthropology. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, I really like dentists and I like smiles. And I, I just think I need to be a dentist. And I think it'll be good for me as a woman to be a dentist because then I can manage my own practice and my own schedule. I think I'm going to be a dentist. I drive down 
I start taking the initiatory classes for dental school and I'm sitting in the dental school classes and we're doing chemistry and chemistry. I don't even know what it was called. Organic chemistry. Like you need to be organic for chemistry too. I don't know what that meant, but there were all these like letters and numbers on the board. And I was like, uh, uh, like there's no words. Like everything has a letter and a, I'm uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, uh. So I was like, I'm not going to do dental school. I can't like, I can't. And plus I like talking to people and I like it when they talk back and I hate it when dentists ask you a question and then they have your mouth with like this thing and they're like asking you a question. It's like, no, I don't want this. So I go to my sister. I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. And she's like, tell me what you like. I said, I like people. I like helping people. I want to go to bed at night knowing that I did something that was, you, you know, helpful. And she's like, well, why don't you study psychology? By the way, this is six years after I took that psychology course that she said this to me. I was like, yeah, why don't I do that? I went in, started my doctoral program. I applied, I got in and I started it. And I tell people that the day this voice tells me, don't do this anymore, you don't like this, I'm out of here, I'll go do something else. I have to listen to that voice because I can't live every single day of my life in a prison that I have created for myself. And I see it as the biggest form of self-betrayal that you have a voice that's telling you something that this isn't right for you. This isn't right for you, but you're locked into it somehow. Um, And I'm not saying you need to quit your day job right? There are people who have to pay the bills and they have to feed the family and they have to send that money back home. But find your calling. Find a way to live that out somehow. So there are people who are like consultants, but they like have like, you know, they design their own suits. I know people who've done that and like they draw, you know, and they go to art school over summer and they take like two weeks off and okay, live it out Mm. every single day and find a way for that calling to serve humanity and you've done your thing. Yeah, no, and I love what you said about uh, trusting your, it's about trusting your intuition. Like you said, that inner voice told you that they don't do this and you know, you made that decision to move on. And I think that's something that everyone needs to start doing more of, listening to the inner voice. And like you said, that's how you'll start to maybe identify what your true calling is and find a way to bring it forward and serve humanity as well. No, I totally agree with that. I think that's a really important point, though. And this is something that I'd like to talk a a little bit about is that there's so many people that say, trust your gut, trust your gut, you know, trust your intuition, trust that voice. And people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like what voice or what, like what intuition you can't like, it's actually not safe for you to trust yourself if you don't know yourself because then you're trusting a stranger and your psyche is protecting you from trusting this thing which is a stranger so of course i'm going to trust my mom because she's not a stranger but how can i trust this voice inside of me when it's a stranger so i'll trust my mom and she tells me go be a doctor i'll go be a doctor i'll trust my dad he tells me go be a lawyer i'll go be a lawyer because i trust them i don't trust myself and so Do not trust yourself unless you know yourself. If you've done some work where you're connected to your voice and I can feel the feeling where I know, oh, I'm coming to life like this is good. And then there are times where I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, like this isn't for me. 
you need to sense these things. We are sensory beings. And if you are disconnected to your physical body, which most modern man is, we are living up in our head and the whole life happens up in here and we're absolutely disconnected to our instinct. If you are not connected to your instinct, which is in your body, and it can't be like a visceral experience for you, don't trust yourself. Yeah. Actually, trust someone else <laughs> that, <laughs> that you might actually know more, that might know more about life. Yeah. So you really got to know yourself. You got to spend time with yourself. You got to quieten that noise. You got to sit with yourself. You got to hear, oh God, this is when you're being really negative. This is when you, you have to be honest with yourself if you're going to trust yourself. Like how can you be honest with someone who's dishonest with you? You can't like stroke your own ego. Like you got to be real. You got to be right. You got to be authentic. How can you trust people that are not real, authentic, and you feel like they're selling you something? You won't. And how would you do that for yourself? Exactly. I've, I've actually never heard anyone speak about it in that way. Everyone, like you said, very correctly talks about trust your intuition, trust your intuition. But no one's added that second part, which is you have to know yourself to trust your intuition, because then, like you correctly said, you are trusting a stranger. And I've never, ever thought of that second part that completes what that sentence should be. It should be the two of those things together. A hundred, hundred percent, a hundred percent. Oh, that's so interesting. I totally, 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 totally agree. Um, Dr. Siddiqui, I know I want to be mindful of our time. So I just have a few last questions for you because I want you to, you know, don't interrupt your day. Um, first of all, I know that your mother didn't want you to become a psychologist because she thought you were too sensitive, which is ironic because you're, what? <laughs> but it's what's ironic is that you I know you mentioned your grandfather was a very renowned psychologist in Pakistan so a psychiatrist okay I apologize um and I don't know if you became a psychologist when he was around or when he wasn't so but I thought to myself I'm like what is one question that you would have always just loved to ask him about like his experience working in that in a similar kind of field oh that's a great question no he wasn't around uh, when I became a psych uh, psychologist, he was a psychiatrist. Um, I would have asked him, you know, tell me what your clients or he his patients teach you. Ah, okay. That's what I would have wanted to know. I learned so much from my clients and they teach me so much, but I would have wanted to know, like, as a psychiatrist, is that different? And in the world that he was living in, was that different? And he saw very clinical cases. Um, I remember because I would be sitting, you know, his, his office was sort of downstairs in this place. And above that was a apartment. And we would sometimes go hang out in that apartment. And, um, and so I would see from below that these guys were really struggling with some very serious clinical psychotic uh, type of situ you know, difficulties. Um, and so, but I wonder what they taught him, mm. you know? Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be super interesting to find out. And like you said, if the cases were that, I guess, severe and stuff. And like you said, you learned the most from your clients. So it'd be cool to understand what he learned from his clients as well. And I think that's a, that's a great question to ask. Uh, and for my last two questions, uh, I know when you moved to Dubai, you had a goal of breaking the stigma around mental health. And here we are, 11 years later, you built Lighthouse, you have, a, you, one, you, have, you, have, you host the most support groups in the entire, I think, region in like one center as well. So would you say that you've accomplished that goal so far or is there still some work that you, you think needs to be done? No, no. The day we're done is the day I'll be done. 
Um, <laughs> but no, we are a far way, way away from globally, by the way, this is not just regionally from breaking the stigma of mental health. You know, a lot of times, this is what I'm seeing happen, by the way, there's companies that are saying, oh, mental health, mental health, and mental health is important and mental illness is an issue. But then the leader of that company, the CEO of that company, he sees a therapist, but he's not willing to tell anyone that. There's no disclosure of that. And I'm not saying that you need to, but if we're really going to break down the stigma, then you need to start sharing your struggles with people, especially when you are in a place of leadership. I very consciously, and I talk to my therapist about this, that I tell people I have a therapist. I tell everybody my children have therapists and I've asked their permission. And, you know, I've asked their therapist if this is something I can disclose. My husband has a therapist and he is in a very you know, in a powerful position and he has the power to influence something here mm. and to say that I struggle and I had, this is part of my mental health hygiene that I see a therapist to keep myself aligned. Like I would see a coach to keep myself aligned. I think this is what's next. Yeah, fine. We're all talking about mental health, but no one's owning it. You know, no one wants to say, well, oh, I see a therapist because then people are going to be like, well, what's wrong with you? Nothing is wrong with me. And why should there be something wrong with me? I just want to talk about my struggles. Like, I don't have to have a diagnosis to see a therapist. Like, I just have to say I'm hurting and I'm going through a divorce or I'm really struggling with parenting. And, you know, COVID happened and I really feel afraid and anxious. What's wrong with this? But people, aren't af people are afraid to say that. You know, there's juniors um, especially in these professional services firms that I work with, they're juniors that aren't able to say it to the senior partner because they don't want to be seen as weak or, you know, too millennial or too whatever, because yeah. that's what they get labeled as like, Oh, come on, man, toughen up because yeah. we still have that mentality. Yeah. We still do. And so the stigma and the awareness and the owning and the sharing all come hand in hand. We yeah. have a ways to go. We have a ways to go. But I think you said something that's so important is, like you said, the aware people talk about it and there's definitely more awareness about it. But I think the key thing that you said is taking ownership of it and not being afraid, not necessarily sharing, but owning that I'm going, I'm going to a therapist. Doesn't have, you don't have to disclose what it is, but taking that ownership because especially like you said, in companies and corporates, it starts from the top down. Influence comes from the top and that's how you influence the rest of the company. 100%. Yeah, I think it's just for people in place of power to share that you struggle. Yeah. You don't have you don't have to share that you see a therapist, but to share that there are weeks where I don't want to get out of bed and to say that there are times where my heart feels like it's going to jump out of my chest cuz I'm so anxious. All of a sudden you give people permission to say, "Oh, oh shoot, I feel that way too." And that's where I think the vulnerability is lacking. Yeah. And that vulnerability Awareness is there, but the stigma very much um, is still standing strong. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see how things go over the next couple of years. But the way things are moving, hopefully, you know, things, people start, you know, taking ownership and becoming more vulnerable. Uh, Dr. Saliha, for my last question, and this is a question I ask all my guests, is what is the message that you'd like people to take home with them today? I would like to say that life is not meant to be easy. 
I think sometimes we have this expectation that because I'm struggling, there must be something wrong or I must have done something wrong or I'm being punished for doing something wrong. Or I think this idea that something is wrong um, needs to be sort of balanced out that life is hard sometimes. For example, right now, people are, their expectation is that they should be happy. Okay, you don't need to be happy during COVID when like your life has been thrown upside down. It's okay to say that this is difficult, but to have a optimism mm. and a hope that you live with every single day. And I don't mean hope like hope somewhere in the future. I mean a, a sense of hope that you are open to surprises and that you are grateful for the moments. And that's what I mean by optimism, that I'm not the happiest I've ever been right now. No, I mean, I really like it when I go to Zurich and I'm studying and there's all sorts of things that I'm doing and I have the freedom to move about. Okay, yeah, that's when I'm my happiest. But you know what? This isn't bad. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to make the most of this time. So life is not meant to be easy all the time. Your goal is not to be happy all the time. Your goal is to be authentic and your goal is to work towards optimism. Now, optimism is a muscle and you have to work it if you want it to be stronger. Just because if you are a negative and pessimistic person doesn't mean you have to live like that or die like that. You can change that. So I would like to say to people that, you know, own your life, own your struggles be honest about your struggles with yourself. If you can't do it alone, get a mirror. And the mirror is a therapist, which reflects back to you the things you need to work on and work on that because there are so many moments that you might be missing out on because you're stuck in some idea of life rather than life itself. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I guess... For me, every hardship has meaning that I'm supposed to take away from it. And I've always thought about, hmm, why is this happening for me? I've gone through some really difficult times recently, and I have grown exponentially mm. in the last two months, I would say, because I took this hard thing that happened to me and I said, all right. The universe doesn't send me things unless I'm supposed to evolve. And so what am I supposed to do? And I forgave and I healed and I went through so many things. So if you look at life as happening to you, you're going to feel like a victim. But if you look at life happening for you, now you learn and everything has meaning and you become grateful for everything that happens to you. So yeah, make life happen for you. Yeah, not to you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a beautiful message. And I think everyone can relate to that on on so many different levels. And I love the example that you said about having like your mirror is kind of like your therapist, and that will show you what you need to work on. I thought that's a great analogy. And I think so many people could learn so much from your experience and from our conversation today about therapy and about so many things. So I wanted to say thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. I was I've absolutely loved this conversation. I really learned so much from you. So thank you so much, Dr. Saliha. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really an honor. The pleasure. And to everyone, guys, thank you so much for listening. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.